Hi, this is Erica Potter. And this is Hunter Willis. And this is Hot Girl Briefing. Hey everybody, just wanted to jump in real quick before this episode. We did record this on March 10th, so that was four days ago. Some things may have changed, but most things should still be totally and completely accurate. Um, Also, as far as the audio goes, we truly do apologize for that. We don't know what happened to my audio to make it so loud at points during the episode. However, it is a little loud at certain points in the episode, so please just bear with us. I promise you it adds to the episode. It is a valid contribution, otherwise we would have taken it out. But thank you all so much for bearing with us, and we hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Okay. This meeting is being recorded. All right. Um, hey, Erica. Hey, Hunter. Who do we have the very fortunate honor of having on the podcast today? We have, once again, the esteemed Dr. Paul Kubitschek. You guys may have remembered him from a previous episode or two. Mm-hmm. So welcome back, Professor Kubitschek. How are you today? Uh, my pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. So Hunter, what are we talking about today? So today we are talking about Ukraine. It's the only thing in the news. It's the only thing that anybody's ever seeing. Like we just talked about in a couple episodes ago, there was a whole coup in Burkina Faso. And, you know, nobody really even heard about that one. But everybody has heard about Ukraine. Everybody has heard about the grandma with the sunflower seeds. Everybody's heard about the ghost of Kiev. There's everybody's hearing about everything about Ukraine. So we just wanted to go over and give a bit of a recap for everything that's been going on and talk to Professor Kubitschek again and really get the down and dirty details of everything that's going on in Ukraine. Okay, well, uh, we had a second update episode after um, we had you on Professor Kubitschek and we kind of covered a little bit more ground, but I believe that was before the actual invasion. Mm -hmm. So Hunter, if you want to lead us off with what happened from what we talked about then. Yep. So since then, um, Russia has clearly invaded Ukraine. You know, they're calling it a host of different things, whether that's a special military mission into Russia, whether it's simply propaganda, whether it's, you know, Ukraine just trying to make Russia out to be the bad guy here. It's It's an invasion, though. The world clearly sees that. It's very well documented that this is an invasion. This isn't just simple propaganda like Russia is trying to push out. So there has been an invasion in the Ukraine, and Russia is currently attacking multiple cities, putting other cities under siege, and, you know, really just going for a full-blown invasion into Ukraine. However, Ukraine seems to be pretty well poised for how everybody was thinking that this was going to go when there was an initial invasion in. So I guess that that'll kick us off with our first question. Professor Kubitschek, How do you feel Ukraine has been handling this so far? Like, how exactly would you say they're going about this whole thing? Well, I mean, first of all, I would I would say I have to for your for your loyal listeners who may remember, I did not think things would go this far. I really Mm -hmm. did. I I foresaw a different plan of attack by the Russians, maybe cyber attacks or a limited incursion. I did not think we'd be seeing shelling of metropolitan centers of major cities in Ukraine produ- and, and producing large-scale civilian casualties that unfortunately I think are only going to grow in coming days. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainians though 
to their credit, have outperformed, I think, anybody's expectations. Um, Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, their hero, or their president has turned into a hero. I recommend to your listeners, if they have not already, to find his sitcom, Servant of the People, and watch a few episodes of that to see what sort of catapulted him to fame um, before he became president. His, his sitcom is sort of a joke where he becomes president. Of course, he does so in real life. No one expected this out of him, but he clearly has captured the world's imagination. The Ukrainian grandmas, the Ukrainian women making Molotov cocktails, the old men you know, going out on the front lines, the people returning from overseas to go fight for their country. This is tragic, but it's inspiring at the same time, right? To see people dedicated, dedicating their country, risking everything uh, for, their, for their homeland. And, and, and their bravery cannot be overstated against really, I think, some incredible odds. But they've managed to, um, only one medium-sized city or major city, if you want to call it that, Harrison has, has fallen. Um, several are under siege. The most serious is probably in the southeast in Mariupol right now. Um, Kiev has been resilient, although the Russians um, continue to move forward uh, you know, a kilometer or so. It's been a, 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 a costly slog for them, but they are moving forward, um, trying to tighten their grip on, on the cities. But they managed to put up resistance. The Russian casualties, by most estimates, are in the thousands. Mm -hmm. um, Russia, the military has proven to be far less competent or capable than, than people thought. They've gotten bogged down. Um, there's, there's reports about low morale and, and some defections. Of course, you know, we're hearing, you know, we too are hearing sort of one side of the story, but, but clearly this has not gone to plan. The question becomes how long they can hold out, um, but they've received a lot of, they are receiving um, some military support to hopefully replenish their, their stocks. The humanitarian situation is, is urgent. Um, and that's going to be uh, obviously something that's going to require a lot of assistance as well. But it does appear that the world, many parts of the world, Europe, United States, Canada, um, our Asian allies, others are coming together to provide assistance for Ukraine. So that is encouraging. But again, it's, a, it's, it's an unbelievably horrible situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have numbers coming from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine that there have been, from the losses of the Russian army, that Ukraine is saying that they've lost more than 12,000 personnel, 49 aircraft, 81 helicopters, 335 tanks, 526 vehicles, 7 UAVs, 1,100 armored vehicles of different types, 3 vessels, 56 multiple launch rocket systems, 29 anti-aircraft war systems. And that's just as of today when we're recording on the 10th. And I mean, like you were saying, I don't think that anybody in the world was quite expecting Ukraine to, you know, hold so defensively and hold that line as well as they are holding it right now. Yeah, I, I don't know if those numbers are, are, are necessarily yeah, I mean, yeah. valid. I'm not, I'm not going to say that that's the actual sort of count, but, but the U.S. intelligence is, is saying that the casualties do number in the thousands. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of vehicles have been, have been destroyed. Dozens of planes have been shot down. It's clear that this is not going to plan. It's a, it's a, there is a heavy cost to this. And, you know, the Russians may be able to su succeed in taking some cities. I'm not saying that the war is over by any stretch, right? The Ukrainians, you know, we're still early in this. But if you thought that Ukraine was going to roll over, and especially if you thought they were going to take the whole of the country, I think that's off the table now. I don't think mm. they can take 
all of the country. I mean, they may be able to go into Kiev and claim some major eventually, but I would find it highly unlikely they would push further to the West. I mean, you, Ukraine is getting weapons. Um, the Russian forces and supply lines are gonna be stretched thin. It's gonna be very difficult. And, and the sanctions are beginning to have a bite as well. I don't think that Russia wants to be in this for you know, too, too long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing reports of Russian oligarchs moving all of their yachts back to Russia because otherwise they're being seized. We're seeing Britain taking sanctions out on the Chelsea soccer owner, which happens to be a Russian oligarch. We're seeing Russia being removed from large financial institutions like SWIFT. You know, we saw their stock market drop almost 40% in one day. And since then, I believe that it's been closed every day just to avoid further right. falling. I mean, mm -hmm. at this point, how exactly are the Russian people and Russian oligarchs really reacting to Vladimir Putin and his, you know, conquest in the Ukraine or his well, attempted conquest in Ukraine? Well, there have been some protests, but they have been brutally put down by the Russian force, security forces. And, and you're seeing really a much more autocratic, repressive system at home. Thousands of people have been detained and arrested for the protests. And it takes a brave person to do that. I mean, let's not kid mm -hmm. ourselves to do that. I mean, it, if you say, well, the Russian people are passive, you know, the costs of going out and doing something, saying anything are, are quite, quite high. The Russian disinformation campaign is in high gear. The narrative they're spinning is very much that Ukrainians are Nazis. Ukrainians are to blame for the casualties. The West is responsible. I mean, all of this, you know, the Russia is only targeting military targets and all of this. Um, I think, unfortunately, I would say the evidence suggests that many Russians do believe this narrative, uh, both opinion polls, if you believe those, but also anecdotal stories of Ukrainian people living in Ukraine, calling their relatives in Russia and saying there's a war going on and, and them saying, no, there's there's nothing going on, you know, or, you know, it's it's not that bad or whatever the case may happen to be. Um, so I don't know, you know, obviously the Russian people are going to feel the effects of this, whether it's the banking sector, whether it's rising prices, the ruble collapse, McDonald's closing, I mean, all mm -hmm. of these, right? But I think Putin will be quite effective in blaming that on the West, that the West is taking revenge out on Russia, that the West has always hated Russia. And this is, you know, some sort of grand scheme we've always had. There's a lot of latent anti-Americanism in Russia. Putin had high marks of support before the war, and I think he has that sort of political capital that will allow him to ride out any sort of uh, domestic opposition. And in all honesty, if a lot of the intelligentsia or the dissidents or artists or others who are you know, speaking out, if they want to leave Russia, I think Putin's fine with that. It's mm -hmm. less of a problem for him, right? The bigger question is, is sort of, you know, well, these oligarchs and others that are sort of the power players, are they going to feel the pinch? Are they going to get, you know, um, somehow get uh, upset and try to do something about it? I honestly don't know what they can do at this point. Putin has isolated himself to such a degree that getting to him, just having a meeting with him requires you to be in quarantine for a week prior to seeing him. And you've seen these staged meetings that he has where he sits you know, 40 feet away from, from, from his advisors and, and berates them or something. He's operating like a mafia don. He has a very tight sort of inner circle. Everybody's afraid, clearly. And, and how you break through and how you end this, you know, I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I think many people are wishing that someone would take the initiative and 
try to overthrow him. I mean, no one would shed a tear. I think I can say this in your podcast. No one shed a tear if there's a reports of a, you know, assassination of, of Vladimir Putin. But, but the reality is that's going to be, I think, quite difficult to pull off. I think you're definitely right. No one, maybe no one outside of Russia would probably shed a tear. Um, but going off what you said about Putin isolating himself, I think that's really interesting considering how Russia and China have like similarities in how they handle the West and Western approaches. So would you say that Putin is isolating himself against even China? Because we haven't really seen China interact in regards to this invasion, aside from kind of saying, I have nothing to do with this. This doesn't involve me, even though it's, you know, practically a world, almost a world war on the cusp of it. There were reports today in the Washington Post, I believe, that the Chinese um, are not as happy with this invasion as one might think, right? They were kind of taken surprised by it. Their own intelligence didn't know it was going to occur. They don't like seeing the images that they're seeing on TV. They don't like being associated with that. The West is now, I think, more united than it's been for a long, long time. Um, I think the longer this goes on, and especially if China is, is forced or asked to um, assist Russia in some way, financial, particularly financially, that, that there's gonna be costs to pay for that as well. I think long overdue questions, long overdue questions are being asked about um, the world financial networks and who supports whom and where money goes and corruption and, and you know, autocratic regimes I'm not going to say that, you know, we're going to totally clean our hands of everything, right? But I think that China's going to feel some pressure on this. I think that they're not comfortable with what's going on. Um, for Putin's sake, you know, I mean, Russia, Russia doesn't want to become a vassal of China either, right? So there's risks for them in, in this venture as well. But you're seeing some shifts in geopolitics for sure. And for those who are students of geopolitics or political science, these are interesting you know, it's interesting times. I think they're horrible times, but they're, they are interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we were seeing reports too that Xi Jinping did know about the potential invasion and had asked Vladimir Putin at their meeting in Beijing at the Olympics to wait until after the Olympics were done before starting this. So, I mean, we're also seeing China not really wanting to get involved with this. It's, you know, Ukraine's largest trading partner you're seeing China having its own issues with the US over Taiwan. And if anything, if it goes in and essentially tries to help Russia at this point, that would be a large blunder for China, at least I think so, just because they'd be limiting themselves militarily if they were to go and have a strike against Taiwan. You're seeing, you know, I think other countries capitalizing off of President Biden at this point of not being as strong on foreign policy as past U.S. presidents have been just seeing that after Afghanistan, that was one of the largest blunders in you know very recent U.S. foreign policy, and so I think that Putin's really taking advantage of that, and I think that China is trying to figure out their calculations for you know how far do we go in this friendship with Russia? Is it going to be worth you know being friends with the ostracized country here that you know isn't even welcome in international markets? I mean. Mercedes-Benz isn't even shipping over Mercedes into Russia anymore. I mean, like the classically, you would think of Russia as, you know, having these Mercedes and Maybox for, you know, their leaders and oligarchs. And you're not even seeing that. Like you mentioned, McDonald's isn't operating. You're seeing large designer fashion wares shutting down their stores within Russia. I mean, it's getting to the point of where it is becoming so isolated in Russia that I don't think that China would even really want to 
get involved further than it already is at this point, especially because you do have those post-Soviet countries that are also on China's border too. You know, you have Kazakhstan that doesn't have the friendliest relations with China and, you know, Kazakhstan still has relations with Russia pretty well. So I think that China is really trying to make it so they can figure out their own calculations, even though they are supposed to have this new friendship and, you know, refreshed friendship with Russia that they had committed to very recently. Right. But I am struck by one thing that your, sir, your observations, you said, things can change quick, quickly, right? We don't know how Mm -hmm. this is going to end, obviously. But if you were to say the West was divided, the West was weak, Biden seemed ineffectual, the West has no leadership. I mean, you you could could have made all these claims a few, a few weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be the case, right? And, and, and I, and, and Putin is not going to come out of this stronger. He's not. Mm -hmm. He's not. He's going to come out of this weaker. Well, you know, I don't know exactly what it will be, but he's not going to get his 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 clear win that he wants. And the Chinese are kind of thrown on this as well. And and I think you have a a West that's a little more galvanized, a West that has a cause, a West that is aware that the world is more dangerous, a West that has its eyes open now more than it did before. So this, these are changing times, and I and mm-hmm. I think um, it's not going to serve. Um, China necessarily well to see how this shakes out, but some countries, you're right, Central Asia, they're kind of be caught in the middle of this, right? And there's some others, they're going to have to figure out how they're going to align. India is another interesting case, right? Where they're trying to be very neutral and hands off mm-hmm. on it. Um, I don't know how much that's, that's a reflection of just Modi and his own particular um, inclinations or whether that's sort of the longstanding Indian neutrality, non-aligned type of position that they had during the Cold War. I mean, you're seeing maybe a reversion of those those types of, of situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just going back to the Cold War, it was extremely advantageous for China to, you know, view Russia as the bad guy and essentially partner with the U.S. and have friendlier relations. So, I mean, if anything, still not being the most friendly towards Russia could end up benefiting China in the long run of, you know, kind of reuniting it and entangling it further with the West while America's trying to decouple itself in this new strategy that, you know, has been the past few years. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? We'll see. I mean, we'll see. I I think that China, like I said, I think China wants to not get entangled in in this. I think they would have, they'd be, they would have been happy to see Putin have a fairly quick victory, but they don't want to get bogged down um, in in being a, a, a supporter of him, especially as the sanctions, if assuming the sanctions stay in place, um, American companies are going to be looking a lot at what they're doing. And I think America itself, and I don't want to sound like a, like a Trumpist here, I, I don't, but I think that that protectionist type of thing, bring production back to America, bring jobs back, invest here, build here, don't be trading with all these people, don't be investing all these things, that's going to have a lot more resonance. I think you're going to see that, um, not, not only because of the invasion, but because of supply change and COVID and and all of this too, right? You're, I think it's going to feed into a more. Um, people are talking now about civilizational blocks in mm. the world. I don't know if you've encountered this, but sort of like that the West now, Europe, the United States, Japan, Australia, Canada is going to be. We're going to trade among ourselves, and and China is going to have its Chinese sort of oriented world, and maybe Russia will have its small Russia oriented world, right? But that we're going to focus more on on being with our own as opposed to a truly globalized system. We'll see. That sounds kind of like a very like Samuel Huntington argument. It does. It does. It does. Yes.
It's very interesting. But it's, but it's based on idi- it's based on ideology, not mm-hmm. culture, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a world. It's it's like the club of democracies. So South Korea, Japan, they can all participate in, in the Western sort of block. Um, but the but the others will be you know and, and there'll be places that'll be in between like India or you know or, or the Middle East is always a battleground too so you know we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, interesting that you mentioned like India. I think you're absolutely right. interesting to see how India is reacting in response to this invasion by Russia, especially when the Swiss and the Taliban both have kind of condemned Russia for its actions against Ukraine, which was it's pretty monumental. I mean the Taliban like come on and like swiss not even rejecting its neutrality during the world war ii and here they are like okay actually this one's bad and yet india while they they did join like a joint or a joint effort for humanitarian aid for ukraine a few days ago they didn't vote like similar to china they didn't vote at all on the un resolution that had what was it 141 approvals over like 193 or out of 193 member countries and only five people against it, which one of those was Russia as, you know, not which was no surprise to anybody. Well, I think again, in India, surprisingly, I mean, I, there is anti-Western sentiment there um, and there's business connections, right? I mean, there's business and, and Russia and India are big trade partners. So, I mean, you know, that, that must factor into it as well. I mean, look at the United Arab Emirates, look at a lot of these Middle Eastern countries that are trying to stay out of it as well, right? I mean, the oligarchs aren't gonna go shopping in Milan, but they can go to Dubai, right? I mean, and, 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 and there's little to believe that the Emirates are gonna necessarily pressure the Russians. Although I did read that they have agreed to increase their oil production, which is probably something Putin doesn't want to hear. So we'll see how that goes too. Lots of calculations, lots of leaders looking around, thinking about how they can if they have to choose sides, how they're going to do it or, or softly choose and not fully commit to one or the other. Lots of countries making these hard, uh, making these choices, which for some of them may be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing reports of Russia reaching out to Syrian individuals that are skilled in urban combat to help aid in the fight in Ukraine. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I think Ukraine's going to see a lot of mercenaries from all sorts of stripes coming into there, right? You've got mm-hmm. American fighters, uh, Ukrainian-American fighters, um, people going in. You've got Russian mercenaries, the Wagner Group already in there. You've got Chechens going in there. Um, I don't know if they'll actually succeed in getting Syrian folks in there or not, right? But there's going to be, and the longer this drags on, I mean, the, the, there'll be more mercenaries going in and providing training or whatnot. Um, I, I read that report, Hunter, and it's and it's it struck me as odd, though. It mm-hmm. seemed a very odd report, almost like of desperation. Like, what are they going to do that your soldiers are not able to do, right? And I I, I don't know, and I I don't know if it was circulated in the Russian press or not. It's like, oh, Syrians are coming to help us. Well, okay, but you know, you really need their help to with you have this massive army and you're gonna rely upon that sort of group and and what are they good at exactly, you know? I mean, urban warfare, blowing up buildings, I, I don't know. It, 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 but yeah, there's a lot of, there should be a lot of ugly people are in there and you're already seeing accusations of, of war crimes 
um, mm -hmm. which I don't think really, I mean, Putin doesn't care. Let's, let's be honest about that. And Putin and the higher ups aren't going to suffer a wit for any of this, right? But it's part of the, you know, the information war and it's part of, um, you know, the messaging that needs to get out. Although at the end of the day, you know, um, I, I heard this joke. I, I don't like, well, I heard this joke on, 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 on NPR the other day and it was like, and it said that, you know, it was, it was two Russian soldiers and, you know, they were combat veterans and they'd slugged through a campaign. They're sitting on the Champs-Élysées in Paris after, you know, cruising through Western Europe and they're toasting wine and one says the other, well, you know, we did lose the information war. You know, but again, Putin doesn't care about this sort of stuff, right? I mean, he, you mm. know, this is this is stuff that he's not gonna he's gonna thumb his nose at international uh, international criminal court. He's gonna th thumb his nose at international opinion. Um, you know, and, and I think that the question is what really is gonna make him care. It's not about money for him either. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he has all the money. He's, he can live comfortably in Russia. Now he's not going to suffer if he can't go to Paris or shopping for his mistress or something. He's not. He can find ways around this. Um, so if we kind of think of him as a rational in the same way that um, we might be, I, I think he's on a different plane. I think he's thinking very differently about, um, you know, paranoia, perhaps imperial expansion, sort of a 19th century way of thinking about the world. That that most of us, I think, we thought was long gone, but I think it, you know it's not it's not clearly extinguished in all quarters. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's very clear to see with Vladimir Putin that he still is stuck somewhat in the KGB style of thinking, still in the past of the Soviet Union. Of you know, this is one of the greatest disappointments of Russia is seeing the Soviet Union fall. So as long as he can put together some type of coalition of you know the old Soviet Union into a new Soviet Union and, you know, make Russia great again, per se. I think that you're seeing that very, like, strong man approach to this of trying to do that at any means necessary and to separate Russia and its surrounding areas from the West and make sure that, you know, Ukraine never will join NATO. They never will be able to join the EU at this point because it's just going to be too much of a security risk for them. So I think that he's ultimately coming to accomplish some of his goals. It's not in the way that he wanted to, but I do think that he's accomplishing that, you know, Ukraine is definitely not going to be fast-tracked for the EU. It's not going to be fast-tracked for NATO. There's still going to be some support from European countries in America, but it's not going to be quite to the extent that, you know, he was hoping for. But I think you're right. You're, you are right. But I think it's interesting when you talk about Soviet nostalgia, right, which he clearly sort of has, if not Russian imperial nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier, you, you associate Mercedes with Russia. I associate the broken down Ladas with Russia. I associate, I mean, we have a generational thing here, but it's like the old mm -hmm. Soviet Union, people did not live well. They were mm -hmm. not happy there. It was an isolated country that, that you know, was up revolted with nuclear weapons, right? Or Burkina Faso, sorry for your reference, with nuclear weapons. Right? Mm -hmm. it, was not a, it was not a particularly wealthy country. There were no oligarchs. You know, there was nothing like this. There were no yachts that they owned or they didn't go shopping in Dubai or Paris. It was, it was squalid in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, Russians, I mean, they could return to that and say we're proud and we have more territory and we're feared and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, it's going to be a it's going to be a much more you know, there are a lot of things that they take for granted in their post-Soviet lifestyle, especially the urban middle classes or upper classes of Russia. Um, it's at risk for them now, mm -hmm. you know. Their world, their world has been uh, 
turned upside down, not as much as the Ukrainians, obviously, who are suffering immeasurably worse, but they will suffer. They will suffer. And for the sake of what? For what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean and, and I, I'd like to think that they begin to ask themselves that question. But if you really want to be, you know, feared or bad or think that, you know, you're strong or something, you're standing up to the West that has um, somehow you believe has abused you or scorned you or treated you wrongly in various ways, revenge. I, I don't know. It, it, it puzzles me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be costly for Russia, clearly. Do you think that we're going to see a mass migration out of Russia because of this, of that, you know, middle to upper middle class trying to, you know, still preserve that lifestyle the best that they can in surrounding countries? I think you will. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about mass, but you're going to see a brain drain. You you see brain drains out of autocratic countries all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, the, the thing that Russia always had going for it was that you could live a comfortable life in Russia as a professional, as a business professional, you didn't even have to be a corrupt oligarch, right? I mean, there was a thriving, you know, Moscow was a major metropolitan place of culture and arts and all this sort of stuff, St. Petersburg. Um, That a lot of the sort of creature comforts of that are going to be gone now. And for those who have the means, they may choose to leave in the same way that you've seen rich people from the Middle East and, you know, in other parts of the world. The difference though, the difference in this case though, is gonna be that they're gonna have to make a choice. I mean, they're gonna have to kind of defect and and be part of the West. You're not gonna be having your little apartment in New York or London and be an oligarch and be back in in Moscow kissing Putin's butt, Mm -hmm. you know, you're gone. And, and if you're gone, that's, that's, you know, you, you, they, they, I'm sure they'd be welcome in the West. They could bring money and other sorts of things, talents um, to other countries. But um, so you may see many people trying to leave. I mean, it's a dark place. I mean, it, it, it's going to be less free for sure and less prosperous. Mm-hmm. So I guess overall with Russia's demands that they have made, the demands being that Ukraine ceases military action, that Ukraine changes its constitution to enshrine neutrality, that Ukraine acknowledges Crimea as Russian territory, and that Ukraine recognizes the separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. I mean, I personally don't think that Ukraine is going to cede to any of these demands at this point, just because I think it if they did, it would almost make Ukraine as the partially independent territory or a pit of Russia. I, I mean, what are your thoughts on the demands? I mean, is Moscow making these very lofty demands just so they can continue this, you know, military incursion? Or are, do they actually think that they're going to get any of these demands out of Ukraine? These are great questions, right? I mean, on the one hand, you could say it's a ploy, right? They mm-hmm. put something out there. Zelensky says no. Oh, Lazinski doesn't really want peace, right? You know, mm-hmm. we made him an offer, but he rebuffed it. He's not interested in peace. You know, look at look at what 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 we're doing. And I think it's also fair to say that we in the United States can't impose that decision on Zelensky or the Ukrainians. They're going to have to make that decision. I would say, and I did not say this earlier at a, at a larger public event where I. I, but I will say this now that if you were Zelensky, if that if they offered you that deal prior to the invasion, knowing what you know now, 
if could could you if you could have prevented this war by giving up Crimea, which you would you already had lost, and there was mm-hmm. no way you're getting Crimea back. Let's 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 not let's 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 not pretend they're going to get Crimea back. All right, getting rid of those territories in the east that are Russians sort of you know over, have been overwhelmingly Russian Russian speaking, um, kind of corrupt kind of a morass sort of territory that has some economic value, but you know, it's they they have a different sort of mindset in the in the East. And giving up NATO membership that you weren't going to get anyway for the foreseeable future. To say we'll do all of that and we get peace, I'm not sure that's the worst deal. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't want to be Zelensky have to make that decision. I think a lot of people would criticize him for giving up Ukrainian territory, but he's not going to re- get that. He's not going to get that stuff back. They're not going to push Russian forces back. You know, this is another sort of fantasy. Where the, how are they going to have the wherewithal to push Russia, Russia back to the border and seize some sort of offensive? This isn't going to happen. All right. This is another thing. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if I'm proven wrong, put me back on the podcast. You know, <laughs> play me and bliss, you know, say that I should be stripped of my PhD in political science, all sort of stuff. Right? This is just not going to happen. I mean, they're not going to win militarily to push. They're not going to win that way. So they're going to have. They're going to win through some sort of negotiation. They're going to have to make some sort of settlement. Putin has to be able to claim some sort of. There has to be an off ramp for Putin. There has to be. Mm-hmm. So what is Ukraine, you know, or, or do they want to hold out for 20 years and have the Russians come to a realization at some point like Afghanistan that we'll just pull out, you know, it's, it's too costly 20 years later. Well, that's going to be, you don't want Ukraine to look like Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So I think that deal is, if, if they're serious, I don't know if they are. Um, how would you believe the? How could you trust anything Putin says? I mean, a piece of—it's a piece of paper to him, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the biggest problem ultimately. I think is that if you believed that they could take some territory, Ukraine would not join NATO. Okay, I don't think we'd let them in anyway. To be honest, the risk would be enormous for us. Uh, but how would Ukrainians? How would their security possibly be guaranteed from another Soviet invasion? Sorry, Russian invasion or subversion? There'd be no there'd be no meaningful guarantee of that. So I don't know if there can be a deal at this point like that. Unfortunately, I really don't. Um, and I don't know what what calculation you know what would be good enough that Ukraine would would settle for. It, it doesn't seem prior to the invasion it wouldn't seem like the worst possible deal. But now that Putin's played that card, who's to say Russia and he wouldn't do it again? So I, I I don't know. I mean I, I think in every day the war goes on it it it's it makes Putin probably more likely to want to find some sort of settlement. But Zelensky is can Zelensky say that he's won by giving up a large portion of his country and not joining NATO? I mean maybe he can. I would like to think that we could offer enough support, you know, mil, really real military support that would beef up the Ukrainian military to be they could deter a future Russian invasion. Maybe that'd be enough. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like just yesterday, Zelensky said that he has cooled down on his like wanting to join NATO 
and would be willing to compromise on the pro-Russian separatists. But you make an absolutely valid point that I didn't even think about was like, could we even trust Putin in any compromise that they could reach? Especially after they agreed to it, like assist ceasefire and you know miracle, and he couldn't even honor that. Like he couldn't even honor the basic humanitarian corridor that Ukraine had asked for, let alone any sort of agreement they might come to. Right, and I think that's the problem. Right, is that you, nobody you can't take anything that they say particularly seriously. So these negotiations, again, I think the negotiations. I'm not saying they're completely fake. That's not, I think, and they should try the negotiations, but a lot of this is theater. A lot of this is part of the propaganda effort, right, on both sides. Zelensky, you know, I think it was Lech Wałęsa in Poland who said, you know, like he would, he'd negotiate with the devil if he thought it would you know, possibly save Poland, right? I think Zelensky has to have the same attitude, right? He has to negotiate if he thinks he possibly can save his country, but I mean, you're dealing with 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 Putin, who's not much better than the devil himself, right? So what 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 do you take from that? Um, he's going to need some real backing and support somehow. Um, you know, not joining would EU membership be enough? Would that be you know a fast track EU? And they get into that, is that going to make them feel more secure? I don't know. I mean, Putin doesn't he cares about that, right? They could go back in. But you can make the argument that Putin, you know, he he's going to have to lick his wounds. He's going to think twice about this, um, get what he can, and and maybe leave Ukraine alone. I mean, that's another possibility, but I don't know if that's a risk anybody wants to take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just coming from a security perspective, it seems like, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk already very pro-Russian. It seems like it would have been the best to see these over as, you know, I know that I keep on bringing this up, but I really do love pits. I love partially independent territories. I think that they are some of the best ways to, you know, create these peace agreements that, you know, they can still have their sovereignty to some extent and still have that, you know, control over this own, their own regions but still end up reporting back to, you know, the host government, say Ukraine. So I do think that that would be at this point, one of the best possible solutions. But like you said, I mean, there's a lot of theater going on here. We saw them arriving for talks in Turkey and leaving with absolutely no agreement. We see ceasefires not being respected. You know, there's a lot going on here. And then, I mean, you also see Belarus and President Lukashenko going and ensuring that there's going to be electricity to Chernobyl and the nuclear power plant there like there's a lot of actors in the story and it's not just between Russia and Ukraine it still is between Russia Ukraine the EU the US Belarus you know all these other actors that are still in there you know they may be side characters in the whole story overall but you're going to have to have an agreement that's going to end up pleasing everybody otherwise it's not going to be a lasting I, agreement and especially I, holding each other accountable with that too I think one thing I, I'm interested what you said about the partially independent territories is interesting because I think one way that Zelensky can, again, I'm, I don't know if anybody, you know, I don't know what they're thinking about in Washington or Kiev or any of these places, but one thing you, one way you could finesse this actually, and is you could say, all right, um, I'm a Democrat. I believe in democracy. We will send in internationally recognized monitors, the OSC. Don't care with little D, by the way, everybody. Don't yeah, little D, little D. I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I'm saying Zelensky says this, right? I'm a, yeah. I'm a little bit I just wanted to make sure for the listeners, they were right. not thinking, you know, Joe Biden over here. Yeah, yeah. So he uh, will send in the OSCE, the Organization of Security Cooperation in Europe, will have elections in 
Crimea and in Luhansk and Donetsk, and we'll give the vote, we'll give people there three choices. You can be part of Ukraine, you can be part of Russia, or you can be independent. And mm -hmm. let them choose. And let the chips fall where they may, right? I mean, who know? I don't know what the results of that would be, right? I mean, would people in Crimea say, well, Putin's a real, he's gone crazy. I don't want to be part of Russia anymore and agree to leave. I mean, me as also a little D Democrat and occasionally a big D Democrat, but mostly as a little D Democrat, I think that would be a good solution. I think people should live, should be under the control of government that they want to be under the control of. You know, mm -hmm. if, if, a, if, a, if a country wants to secede or a region wants to secede and they vote to do it democratically and the borders and everything else are settled, let them secede. Let Scotland be independent. Let Catalonia be independent. Let Texas be independent if it wants. Hell, I mean, that's fine if the people, that's what the people want. I think that that's where you're going to come into that conflict, though, of these other, you know, great powers. You're not going to want the U.S. saying that. You're not going to want China saying, China's not going to want to say that. The U.S. isn't going to want to say that. Of course you know? not. That's, that's risky, have, right? That's yeah, right. It's, it opens, it's it opens a whole can of worms. Point. Yep. It opens a whole can of worms about that. But I think that in this particular case, given the conflict and given that it's contested territory, you could make the claim that that would be a peaceful resolution of it as opposed to one side imposing its will on the other. Let the people decide. That's, that's very idealistic, of course, too. I recognize that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of the large last questions that I have for you is Ukraine is putting together this voluntary militia. They are handing out weapons to civilians you know, which very noble, very understandable, especially from a defense perspective. However, looking at it from a future down the road terrorism perspective, this seems like one of the worst things you could do is just be handing out weapons to people, to an unregulated militia that, you know, eventually not everybody's going to want to return their guns. They just saw what happened. Their country was just invaded. Not everybody's going to want to say, you know what, you gave me this big gun. You know, now that the war is over, I feel completely safe. I'm absolutely going to give this back to you. I mean, how do you think that that is going to play out in the future? Do you see a, you know, I mean, we saw the same thing happen with the Mujahideen, with the U.S. going and arming this group for its own advantage. But then, you know, it later ended up turning into Al-Qaeda. And here we are with, you know, the after effects of 9-11 in the world. So... There's, How would you kind of grapple with this, you know, future down the road scenario versus, you know, the very now reality of I, needing that security? I'm not, I would say, first of all, there's probably a whole host of unintended things that are going to happen out of this. We can't necessarily foresee, right? We're thinking about short-term immediate things and what the long-term impact is going to be. We don't know. I'm less concerned about, you know, average Ukrainian having a, a Kalashnikov, right, that he or she, she in some cases, stores, you know, for their own protection or whatever, souvenir or whatever. Um, yes, the, yes, the region could become flooded with weapons. Yes, you could have um, groups going in to fight. I mean, bases being set up in Poland or Romania, you know, something like the Mujahideen. I mean, people are already talking about this, right? in the middle of Europe, or at least in the Eastern part of Europe, that would be crazy. That would be really something that you wouldn't foresee, right? You have a lot of weapons, it's a region that could remain, could be quite unstable long-term. It may be difficult for any 
government to impose order there. Um, yeah, I mean, if, I, how do you put Ukraine back together after this? It's another good question. Um, yeah, there's this, this could be, again, I think we're thinking about, we're gonna use it to defeat the Russians, but once it's there, you, how do you disarm and normalize a Ukrainian society, assuming that, you know, whatever, when, whenever this conflict ends? These, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see how Ukraine is going to put it all back together. Also, I do have to give credit for that question to a dear colleague, Alex Lewis. She was the one that asked that, and it really sparked my curiosity, and I could not wait to ask you that same question. But it is going to be really interesting to see how Ukraine really puts itself back together after, you know, the chips fall. Because at this point, it really is kind of surprising of, you know, how Ukraine's been handling it, how Ukraine has been so defensive in its position, how Russia is reacting to that, how morale on the battlefield is going. You know, the U.S. isn't involved yet, which usually, God knows, the U.S. is always the first in the fight, it seems. Yeah. So, I mean, and then China as well, you know, not really going all in for their bestie Russia in the region. So it's really interesting to see how this situation is forming. And I don't think that it went to anybody's kind of idea of how it would happen. I will say I was correct with the Luhansk and Donetsk part. I will absolutely pat myself on the back for that. I feel pretty proud about that one. But otherwise, I, I mean, I was not expecting a full-blown invasion. I was expecting, like you said, maybe some paramilitary gray zone tactics mm -hmm. in just those specific regions. I really was not expecting, you know, the shelling of Kiev, going and having human rights abuses of, you know, blowing up hospitals and burying, you know, thousands of people underneath rubble, having the Russian embassy in the UK, having their Twitter banned for, you know, denial of violent acts, as Twitter wanted to say exactly. So, I mean, I don't think that anybody was really planning that this was how it would go. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how exactly it shapes up. I think it's interesting, though, I mean, to give the Biden administration some credit, they, they did say invasion was, was going to happen. Mm -hmm. They did say that their harsh sanctions were going to be put in place, and that's true. I am surprised by the, let's say, at the non-governmental sanctions that are occurring, right? Whether it be the Olympic Games, whether it be McDonald's, whether it be the bars pouring out, Stolichnaya, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? The, the, and I would hate to think that this becomes a general sort of anti-Russian in general thing. I think we have to be careful about that. And, and I, hopefully there'll be some voices raised about that because not every Russian's in favor of the war. And, um, you know, Russia's, Russia has, is a, I, you know, having spent time in Russia, Russia's a wonderful country and has a lot to offer as well. It's just unfortunate they, they're currently, the current government they have. I will say, I maybe leave it at this, that um, the key element of this, I think, talking about like the future and the peace settlement or whatnot, if Kiev falls, it changes the whole calculation, right? I think that's the, that's the whole thing. If Kiev falls, Zelensky is going to have to cut a deal. As long as Kiev can stay supplied, which is another, you know, how long that'll be, I think that um, Ukraine can, in some shape or form, can, can, can have some modest hope of some type of victory here. But if Kiev falls, it's going to change the calculation very quickly. Very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any last thoughts, Erica? Um, nope. Uh, Pro Professor Kubitschek definitely answered them all. I know that we've covered the subject quite extensively. So, um, and again, we're just going to have to wait and see. So I think we had a pretty good conversation about what's been going on now. And 
some discussions about what could be happening in the future. And all we can do is just hold on hope that Kiev stays Kiev stay strong and that some sort of peace can be achieved. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So with that, thank you so much for coming on, Professor Kubitschek. We always really value your opinion here at Hot Girl Briefing. You've been with us through all of the Ukraine drama going on, so we are happy to have you on once again. I'm happy to be here, but I would really like the thing to be settled and I don't have to come back for this topic. Yeah. Let's put it that way. But unfortunately, I think, unfortunately, that may not be the case. So with that, thank you guys. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately that. But with that, thank you guys all so much for tuning in. And we really appreciate you once again for coming on the pod, Professor Kubitschek. Always appreciated. Always nice to see you. But with that, we will see you guys on Thursday for our regularly scheduled episode of a Keep It BRI. Bye. Bye. Bye.